It's Isaiah 45, starting at verse 14. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt are the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans. They will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Saviour of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exult. The second reading is Acts 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews, who went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, 
I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theatre. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls, they can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. 
Thank you, uh, Sharon and Zoe, for reading that. Do keep that passage open, Acts chapter 19. For this one week, we're focused Sunday, we're in the book of Acts, and uh, we'll be considering that together. Let's bow our heads and pray as we begin. Loving, gracious, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us now as we look at your word. Please speak to us with your authority and power and teach us what you want us to teach for our sake and for the sake of the nations, we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning as we look at Acts chapter 19 together with an observation that on its face threatens the whole idea of world mission, of Christian mission. It looks like a very big obstacle to Christian mission. And the problem is this. The world already believes something. The world already believes something. Uh, people around the world are not waiting. Uh, they're not asking for Christians to come and share the Christian gospel. They're not wondering what to be devoted to or committed to. People already have their own beliefs. They believe in something, maybe religious belief, maybe a secular belief, but people are not wondering what to be devoted to, committed to. What does Christian mission look like in a world that already believes something? So it could be any of our mission partners, but imagine a young couple who are commissioned by a church to go off to Bengal in India, and uh, they're enthusiastic, they're committed, they've been commissioned by the church to go and reach the lost people of Bengal in India for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They set off, they arrive, they arrive, they're enthusiastic, and they arrive in late autumn amid the Diwali festival and discover, to their surprise, that this is no ordinary festival, that there are lights everywhere, there are lots of statues of Lord Ganesha, and actually the whole society, top to bottom, is involved. They all have their beliefs. Even the merchants are involved. There's an economy that's associated with this God. And they discover that the people they've come to, the so-called lost people, already believe in something, not in the Lord Jesus, but in something. How do they begin to do Christian mission in a place like that? It's true as well of us in the secular West. So imagine the, the zealous young graduate student who gets a job and at a city firm and they arrive and they're, in, they're keen, they're zealous to tell the gospel to their colleagues. And as the weeks and months go by, they discover that actually people aren't asking for, people don't appear to need the Christian gospel. They know what to be devoted to, committed to, many things, but not the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it look like? What does Christian mission look like in a world that already believes something? Hudson Taylor wrote, uh, the, the famous missionary to China wrote letters to prospective missionaries to prepare them, to prepare their expectations. And he said, you need to know that you're coming to a place and the habits, customs, and beliefs of this people have been here for millennia. They're deeply entrenched. What does Christian mission look like in that kind of world? And we need to get an answer to that question, otherwise no one will go, none of us will be involved, and we won't know what it looks like, what Christian mission looks like in this kind of world. Well, for that, we're going to come to Acts chapter 19. And it's precisely the place to come for this reason. In Acts chapter 19, we're, we're joining the story of Acts uh, right in the middle. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus, of course, spreads out and out and out to the ends of the earth in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 19, there is one last part of the world, Asia. Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, roughly, that hasn't been reached with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. 
it says it were, the last final frontier. And we see the gospel of Jesus Christ arriving in that place, in a place that already believes something. It's a word that already believes something. Now there are lots of strange happenings here that are unique to Ephesus, unique to the time. But actually we see here a real principle, we see here a real truth that is true for our world too. If you look at verse 27, you see that Asia, it doesn't just stand for Asia, it stands for the whole world. It's described as Asia and the world. There's lots that's unique in this chapter, but as we look here we see something that's true and representative of the whole world, of our world, of people in the world. And it's a lesson we need to learn if we're to go and do Christian mission. Now the chapter uh, divides neatly really into two halves, verses 1 to 20, uh, and then verses 21 to 41. Now we're not going to go through verse by verse, all 41 verses, you'll be pleased to hear. I'm just going to shine a spotlight through really so we see what's going on, because this whole chapter is animated really by one big point. I've put it on our sheets, uh, on the back of our service sheets, you should have it. The one Lord Jesus becomes known in power, verses 1 to 20. And he shews all other gods are nothing. He brings other gods to nothing. We see that in the second half. Come with me then to verses at 1 to 20. Now, uh, I don't know if you noticed as Zoe was reading verses 1 to 20, we have here a hodgepodge of weird and wonderful occurrences. I mean, what do you make of it? Do you see verses 1 to 7? There's, there's this group of people, strange phenomenon. They've been baptized by John the Baptist. But that's it. That's all. And at verse 6, they receive the Spirit of God and something like a mini Pentecost happens. And then verses 11 to 12, we get these strange miracles by the hand of Paul, or really by his handkerchief and apron. If you touch a hanker and apron, touched by Paul, diseases are healed, spirits are expelled. Then you get this weird story of uh, the seven sons of Sceva, of this Jewish high priest. They want in in the act. And they end up getting mugged, stripped, beaten, and sent out running out of the house. And then, just to top it off, we get this public boot burning by the sorcerers in verse 19, these former magicians. In verses 1 to 20, we've got a hodgepodge of weird and wonderful things. What do we make of them? Well, I want just to shine a spotlight through them all, for they all have something in common. There's one thing going on. They all tell a story of power, real power true power. Asia gets a taste of something it's never had before, and that's power. Just come and see with me this aura of real power. Verses 1 to 7. The the difference between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, his ministry, remember, the difference was one of power. John could get people wet. Jesus Christ could give people the Spirit of God who washes people clean deep down on the inside. So in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus tells them to wait for the Spirit, he describes it as, wait to be clothed with power. Power has come in verses 1 to 7. And then verse 8, Paul speaks boldly, powerfully, and his topic is one of power, the kingdom of God. Everywhere in Acts that the kingdom of God is mentioned, it is the Lord God exercising his power. Verses 11 and 12, these stubborn diseases and evil spirits, they yield to a new power that has come, that's sweeping through. Do you see the evil spirit even recognizes the power of Jesus in his true representative, Paul? And in verse 16, in turn, overpowers these charlatan exorcists. A new power is in time, which is why people have this reverential fear in verse 17. 
And then these sorcerers, verse 19, well, they used to think power was in these magic incantations written down in these books. And they now burn them. They go up in smoke because they've encountered real power. And verse 20, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Power, real power is sweeping through Asia for the first time. That's what's happening here. It's, um, it's a little bit like the advent of uh, electric power in the U.S. One writer really uh, vividly put that when electric power arrives, it was as though then but turn a key and all life becomes present with light and power. And that's a little bit like it was in Asia. All life had become present in light and power. Power had arrived in Asia. But actually that's not quite it because it wasn't uh, an impersonal powerful force that had arrived. What's going on here is actually the arrival of a powerful person, the powerful person. So do you see that the simple reason for the aura of power is actually associated with one person, one name. It's repeated all through these verses. The name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is uh, described as many things in the book of Acts, as Christ Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. But here in these verses, it's only and specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, the title of power, the unique title. The God of the Bible alone can be called Lord, who possesses all the power there is in heaven and on earth. And that is the one, Jesus Christ, who's becoming known in these verses. Do you see that in verse 5? People are now baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 10, all who lived in the province of Asia heard not just the word of God, but the word of the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus. Verse 13, the charlatans, they know enough that this power has something to do with a person called the Lord Jesus. And verse 17, the name that is held in honor is that of the Lord Jesus. Verse 20, again, the word is the word of the Lord. So you see, In verses 1 to 20, Luke wants us to see that there is one person who exercises true power, real power. It is the one Lord Jesus Christ. It is the unique title of power for the one on the throne of the universe. It's been true since his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He exercises all his power over the whole world as the one true Lord. That's what's happening. That's what we're to see here. The Lord is becoming known in power. This is what happens when the gospel comes where it hasn't been before. But I want us to see now, what what should our response be? What what happens at ground level, as it were, when the Lord becomes known in power? And I want to just pause on uh, that strange book burning of verses 17 to 20, because although it's strange, it actually illustrates a principle that's always true when people come to know the Lord in power. Something becomes nothing. People believe in something, indeed they think it's everything, and then when they come to know the Lord Jesus, it seems as if it's nothing, worth nothing. That's what happens. Verse verse 17, do you see people know Jesus as Lord, they hold his name in high honor, and what does that do? Well, it starts to shine a light on the things they thought were something, were worthwhile, powerful. Verse 18, many came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Verse 19, those engaged in sorcery bring their scrolls and burn them publicly. And Luke tells us the total came to 50,000 drachmas. And the little footnote at the bottom of our Bible says that's a day's wages, one drachma. 50,000 of those. This is an astronomical sum. 
something that's worth something, everything in the eyes of the world, has somehow seemed as nothing now in the eyes of these people who have come to know the Lord. Something has turned out in their eyes to become nothing. That's what's happening. And actually this happens every time the Lord becomes known in power. People who think that something is worthwhile devoting their lives to, well actually the scales come off and they realize it's nothing at all. Um, I uh, have a friend who, uh, when he worked uh, in the city, told the story of um, how he shared an office with um, a partner who was pretty senior in the firm. Uh, The partner was successful, he was driven, he was ambitious, and he was rather obsessed actually uh, with his role and status in the firm. And uh, my friend shared the gospel with him. And this man became a Christian. And my friend says that, that almost overnight, it was as though the old obsession went. And know the partner still stayed in the job. He was still committed to it, still did a good job. But it's as though the scales had come off his eyes. He was no longer obsessed. The status, the power, the money, the advancement was not everything to him. He'd come to know the Lord Jesus in power. He'd been forgiven by the Lord Jesus in power. And it was as though that something that had been everything to him now seemed as nothing. It's true of the mother who, obsessed, consumed really by a desire for her children to succeed, and all she can think of is that her children succeed, get the right education, reach the top, and shine a good light on her. Well, actually, in coming to know the Lord Jesus, realizes, has that in perspective, has come to know the Lord Jesus in power. Hopes, desires, goals placed in him, in trust in him. It happens every time someone comes to believe in the Lord Jesus. It's what we pray happens where our mission partners are over the world. But it's what we also pray happens as we take the Christian gospel to people around us. And it's worth asking us ourselves as well. Where has the Lord shown us that something we thought was really worthwhile, something we were devoted to, committed to, where have we come to see But that is as nothing compared to knowing the Lord Jesus in all his power and goodness. Where has that happened? How is the Lord doing that in us? It happens everywhere the Lord Jesus is encountered in power. But we see this really writ large in the main square of Ephesus, the capital of the province of Asia, in the second half of the chapter, verses 21 to 41. But before we get there, I want to make one more observation from verses 1 to 20, which is to ask, how does this happen? How does the Lord become known in power? I mean, our prayer really is that, well, let the Lord Jesus become known in power. That's what transforms lives, so let it happen. But how? How does it happen? Well, it's not going to happen by a repeat of the miracles by the Apostle Paul. I mean, unless you've got some really strong smelling salts, you're not going to bring Paul back. And I can tell you that my hanky spreads germs. It doesn't take them away. So what are we going to do? Well, actually, throughout the book of Acts, and in this chapter as well, we see that the Lord Jesus exercises his personal power through his word. As his word becomes known, the Lord Jesus becomes known in power. Do you see that in verse 20? In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Who's growing in power? Is the Lord Jesus become known in power? Well, he is, but it's as people encounter him in his words, which will mean that 
We've got a very clear method and way to be committed to Christian mission. We'll need to strengthen the arms of our mission partners that they remain committed to, to spreading the word of the Lord. It's what we'll need to pray for. It's what we'll need to be involved in ourselves. And if we go, this is what we're to do. We're to take the word of the Lord. And as people have their eyes open to the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit, they will encounter him in power. But let's come then uh, more briefly to the second half, verses 21 to 41, where we see that the Lord Jesus, when he becomes known in power, he actually shows up other gods, other people or projects that people believe in, to be worth nothing. We've seen it, as it were, at ground level. Now we see it very publicly in this riot Verses 21 to 41 tell us about a riot. Now, if, you, uh, if you're used to reading the book of Acts, you know that there are lots of riots in the book of Acts. As Christians spread the gospel, there are lots of disturbances all over the ancient worlds. But this is the longest description. Luke really gives this one airtime. He, he wants us to learn something, that as he spreads out this riot in the open, he wants us to learn something. He wants us to see these beliefs in other gods for what they are. And we're equipped to do that now because we've seen that the Lord Jesus alone has power. So come with me at verse 21 to 22. We're still uh, in the same story. Paul uh, decides that he needs to go to Jerusalem and Rome, but he himself stays in Asia a bit longer. There's still a lesson to learn in Asia. And the basic facts of verses 23 to 41, I don't don't know if you got the farce and the furore of it as it was read. The basic facts are this. There's a silversmith, Demetrius, and uh, his job is to build uh, silver shrines of the great goddess Artemis. She's the patron goddess of Ephesus and Asia, and he would say the whole world. That's his job, and that's the way it works. Economies are are built on beliefs, whole societies are built on this belief, and this belief in Artemis, the great goddess Artemis, defines Ephesus, defines this whole province of Asia. But there's a problem, because Paul has been saying that because the Lord Jesus is the only true Lord, then these gods, including Artemis, are no gods at all. They're not worth the name gods. And that's a real bombshell to drop if your business is building shrines of this goddess. So Demetrius is worried. He gathers together the fellow uh, workers in his guild, And he says, look, this is what's happening. Paul's going to put us out of business. And what's more, he's going to ruin the reputation of our goddess Artemis. Now, this isn't really a a civilized meeting. He's whipping them up, and that's exactly what happens. They're whipped whipped up into uh, uh, fury. And uh, verse 28, when they heard this, they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the riot spreads to the whole city. And the whole city is involved, and chaos reigns. And it's hard to know whether it's a safe riot to be in, whether it's a protest, or whether actually this is a lynch mob. And people don't want Paul to take any chances, and they say, don't don't go and speak. Don't try and take the platform here. There's no talking to these people. Chaos is reigning. People don't even know why they're there. Do you see that? They're confused, verse 32. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't know why they were there. Someone tries to push Alexander to the front, but he gets shouted down for two hours. They shout at the top of their voices, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This goes on for two hours. And then the city clerk manages to regain some control uh, in this speech in verse 35, which is actually, as we'll see, a really damning speech. The words he says actually speak very truthfully, more truthfully than he knows about what is going on when people worship 
gods like Artemis. Okay. So, I want us just very briefly to notice two things. To notice two things that as Luke spreads this riot out before us, two things that he wants us to notice. And the first is that every other god that people put their hope in, other than the Lord Jesus, is powerless, powerless, unable to save, powerless. Just notice with me how the goddess Artemis is described throughout this chapter, the second half, verse 27. The great goddess Artemis, they shout in verse 28, great is Artemis, verse 34, great is Artemis. Verse 35, the city clerk says, Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of great Artemis. All the way through this second half, we get designations of Artemis as great. People shout it very loudly, Artemis is great. But there isn't a single word of power. There's nothing to do with power in this whole half of the chapter. If the first half was soaked in power, an aura of real power as the Lord Jesus came to Asia, there's absolutely no power in this second half. There's a lot of shouting, there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of confusion, but there's no power. There's no power. And I take it the point is that you can shout at the top of your voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, but it doesn't make Artemis great. It doesn't make Artemis worth following. You could shout at the top of your voice, Allahu Akbar, great is Allah, Allah is great, but it doesn't make Allah great. It doesn't make him worth following. Paul's bombshell still stands. Paul's bombshell. Do you see in verse 26? Man-made gods are no gods at all. Any God, any person or project that people are devoted to and want to give worship to, other than the Lord Jesus, is no God at all. They are powerless. Now I want to just sharpen this a bit further for us so that we don't misunderstand. This isn't some uh, great competition of, of power. So, you know, this isn't saying, you know, what's the world's strongest God competition? Who's the most powerful? Jesus is the most powerful and there's no power elsewhere. You know, it's a specific kind of power. It came out in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah. It, it's the only kind of power that matters in working out whether someone is worth following or not. There's only one kind of power that makes a God worth that name, and that is a power to save. It's a rescuing power. It's the power to wash people's sins away on the inside, to wash them clean. It's a power to carry people through death and to eternal life on the other side. It is a power to save. And again and again throughout the Old Testament, and this is what Paul is saying when he says all other gods are no gods at all, he's saying they are powerless to save. The reason why we must remain committed to taking the gospel of the Lord Jesus even where people believe in something else, is because all other gods, everything else other than the Lord Jesus, will bitterly disappoint people. They are unable to charm away the things that fear us most, the things that make us most afraid. Sin, death, judgment. No, only the Lord Jesus is powerful to rescue. Christianity is the only rescue religion. And in that sense, in that sense, 
Every other God is powerless, powerless to save. And so it's important uh, for us to remember for ourselves, there's a key principle here, that anything we put our hope in, anything we become devoted to, committed to, place our hope in, other than the Lord Jesus, will bitterly disappoint. It is the Lord Jesus himself who's got power to save us, to wash us clean on the inside by giving us the Spirit of God. It is he and only he who can save. But there's one more thing I want us uh, to notice from this chapter. So if all other gods are unable to save, Luke wants us to see as well that they are undeserving, therefore, of worship. They're undeserving of worship. So do you see um, the city clerk... Uh, He brings calm to the city. And you see in his speech uh, what he says in verse 40. It's very subversive that Luke includes it here. He includes it on the lips of the city clerk himself. The city clerk, in describing this whole fuss over Artemis, he says this. Look, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. Indeed. In that case, we wouldn't be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. This is a great big furore over nothing, says the city clerk. And Luke and Paul would say precisely, precisely, because every other God is unable to save. It means that worshipping, creating a fuss, devoting yourself to any other gods is worthless because they are unworthy of worship. They are unworthy of worship. And here, really, we, we hit upon the greatest reason, really, for Christian mission, which is the honor and glory of the name of the Lord Jesus. And you see, there are two great reasons for Christian mission. We saw the first, because gods are unable to save. It is loving to go to people with a message that can save, that can rescue But precisely because only the Lord Jesus can save, only he is deserving of worship and honor. All other worship is like a furore over nothing, says the city clerk. And Paul and Luke would agree. These other gods are not only unable to save, they're undeserving of worship. Which means for us that we are to be committed to Christian mission in a word that already believe something. It has its beliefs and commitments, but as the Lord Jesus becomes known in power, all other gods, all other people and projects that people hope in are shown to be as nothing compared to him. They cannot save, and so they're not worthy of worship. Let's pray that the Lord Jesus becomes known in power in the places we work and live and in the nations. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is installed at your right hand, that he is the one who has got all power and authority in heaven and earth. And we praise you for his grace, that it is a power that he exercises to save and rescue us. We praise you for the gift of the Spirit who washes us clean in the inside that the Lord alone can give. We pray, Father, that his name, his saving power, would become known not just here in London, but that we might go and take it to the nations, that they might come to know the Lord Jesus in all his saving, rescuing power.
And we pray it for the sake of his name ultimately. Amen.